0: Welcome to My Life, Hasidus supplied episode 234. We have a uh, full-packed and rich program for you this evening. Tonight is also the Kinnus HaShluchim, the annual Kinnus and, com- and international gathering and convention of all the Shluchim of the Rebbe from all over the world, so we'll talk about that. There's some follow-up about the tragedy that happened last week in Pittsburgh, the massacre of the Jews. And of course, the timeliness that we are now in the week of Parsha's taildus, going into Rosh Kislev, we'll speak about that and a bunch of questions that have come in, interesting topics. So let's begin with the Kinus Ashluchim, being that it is literally tonight, and say a few words about that and connect it to the Parsha and to the chapter and Torah which we are in the Rebbe would always do when he spoke in his opening talk. The Kinnus, uh, the gathering, the convention was considered open by the Rebbe, by the Fabrengen of the Rebbe on the Shabbos of the kinus. People, The actual Kinnis Wednesday, Thursday, but the official opening was the Fabrengen itself. And the Rebbe, of course, spoke about the Shluchim and the of HaShluchim every year from the time when it began. The Rebbe was himself the one that instituted it. And I want to just share a few words that's relevant to all of us. We'll speak about this as well at the end of the program and the Chassidus question, more details. But the first thing we need to know that the concept of shlichus, which means mission or uh, it, 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 a calling, a shlich means a messenger or ambassador. The concept of shlichus, as the Rebbe explains, begins already in the teda. We find it already in Parsha the last week's chapter, as well as this week's chapter. And uh, where do we find it? When Avram sends Eliezer, ever Avram, to go find a Shidduch for Yitzhak. And he finds that Shidduch, he finds the match, which is Yitzchok and Rivka. The story continues, of course, in this chapter, because in this chapter, first of all, that Shidduch comes together, and they actually marry. And then we have also the Shlichus, where they send Yaakov off to Haran at the end of the chapter, so the concept of shlichus is both these chapters, but many times you'll find it in Schlach, chapter Schlach means actually to send. Because the concept basically is based on the idea that God sends every soul down to earth to fulfill a mission. We're not just here by accident, God forbid. We're here for a purpose, and a purpose means there's a mission. You're sent on a journey, and that journey has a purpose and a mission. So the general idea of what Chassidus calls Yedidus HaNeshama BeGuf, which means the soul comes down into a body in this world, is itself the first mission that all of us, every person on earth has. Within itself, that itself, there are many levels of shlichus. Because you can be a shliach and you can be doing other things that you're also fulfilling God's plan for you. But the Rebbe explains, and especially in the Sikh of Tafshim Memzai and Chay Sara, which would be forty uh, thirty one years thirty two years ago, or now Nun zayin summer zayin were I in Tess, thirty two years ago, a very powerful, beautiful sikh, where he talks about the different levels of Schlichis, all the way down to the fact that the free Rebbe and then the rebbe himself continuing sending shluchim, but the concept is a fundamental concept in all of Jewish faith, which is that God sends each of us here to fulfill a mission. In that itself, what has become what has become so called. More emphasized, especially in the later generations, is the idea where the Rebbe sent Shluchim all over the world for the purpose of spreading Yiddishkeit, chassidus, and helping finish the last, the last, um, the last, bitudim, the last refinements, preparing the world for the Geulah Mashiach. As the Rebbe explains, that Shliach is Gematria, Mashiach is a Gematria, Mashiach adds up Shliach plus 10. That when the Shliach uses his 10 faculties, You have Mashiach, so there you see another emphasis of the concept of shliach of being an ambassador, being a messenger, of in this case the Rebbe who in turn is a messenger from Hashem, plus using your ten faculties that equals Mashiach. The shliach itself is the is the so called person who fulfills the mission, but when he fulfills it and actualizes it by using all his ten faculties, his intellectual, emotional. And actual and, uh, and action based faculties, then you have Mashiach. So, this is a message to everyone. But particularly when you see people who've dedicated their lives, where 24 7 they're literally, that's what their job is to be a Shliach, Shlucha Shlodim Kamesay, to represent the Rebbe in their particular city, locality, and community, and building communities. And there are now thousands of them all over the world. It's it's worthy of tribute, but it's worthy also to take the lesson that each of us has to be a shliach in our own right, has to be a messenger and ambassador in our own right. And in a sense, there's nothing greater in life than to serve a cause that's greater than yourself. Because when you're a shliach, the definition of a shliach means you're not doing what you want; you're doing the job. You're being sent as a messenger, an emissary, of someone beyond, but greater than you are. And when you do that, and you use your faculties, so you have your individuality and you have your unique particularly innovative style and your skills and everything that makes you unique, but you're not serving yourself, you're serving a cause greater than yourself, that's the essence of what a shliach is. A person completely dedicated to a cause greater than himself or herself. And that's the most underlying message among all the other messages in this concept, something that all of us can derive from and learn from in our own lives. So whatever it is that a person is doing, whatever work you're in, whatever stage in life you're in, You're capable, and not just capable, you were sent to this world to do exactly that. Since You can use your faculties just to indulge in your own desires and pleasures and interests, or you can use your ten faculties to fulfill the higher mission, the higher calling which you were given. So that's a beautiful message, and the word kinnis as well. The word kinnis means gathering. Gathering means that it's not just fragmented different pieces. There's a gathering of kinnis when you gather together your ten faculties, when you gather together with other people who have the kindred spirits, who have like-minded interests, or even differences, but there's a common goal, the goal of transforming this world and bringing the redemption, that creates a synergy that only a can create, a synergy that's more than just the sum of the parts. So each of us in the same way, in our own particular mission, at time from time to time, we need to gather together with others, we need to consult, we need to advise to just to gather together and gather strength. Isha sechiv yazeru. Isha sechiv yazeru. Which means a person helps his brother, helps his other, and each one strengthens and empowers the friend, their friend and colleague. And what that creates, as I said, a synergy, a power that's even greater than each individual on their own. Again, this is a lesson for all of us, both the concept of shlichus and the concept of the kinus and shluchim which is happening as we speak. And um, we want to bless and pray that all of them fulfill their mission in the fullest sense of the word and finally finish that last drop that will actually bring the shliach plus 10 equals Mashiach. And each of us in our way shall fulfill our shlichus, each of us fulfilling our mission and doing exactly the same thing in our corner of the world, our sphere of influence, using our faculties to make the world a more refined, a more holier place, a more moral, ethical Place of of compassion and virtue, as and, and fighting the forces of selfishness and self indulgence. Okay, so let's move now to Chassidus, up to Rosh Chodesh Kislev and Taelus. But I want to, before I continue, I want to dedicate this program in loving memory to of Libchana Bas Rab David Svi Lubin, who passed away on, upon her untimely passing on the 21st of Cheshvan this past week. So we're dedicating this program in her honor and her memory. So when we talk about Pasha Teldes and we talk about Rishchides Kislev, we'll first talk about them separately and then we'll see the connection. So Teldes, as I mentioned, has the themes of Shlichus as well, because in general life is always a form of a Shlichus. And you see it also in the journey of Yaakov Avinu. But I want to touch upon just the first word of Teldes, Teldes, what is Teldes? Teldes means the fruit of, the offspring. But Teldes, the, the true offspring that we have is not just our biological children, it's also our good deeds. My pay, the mitzvah, the Talmud says. What are fruits? These are our mitzvahs, our good deeds. So Teldesayim has the, the message that each of us need to bear offspring. It's not enough just to be a, a beautiful tree and a force of your own, but to create a perpetual effect. When you bear offspring, literally and figuratively, what you're doing is having an impact that's beyond yourself. So the focus of the chapter's name is telling us that whatever you do in the shlichus, in the mission mission you're doing, has that type of what we call pa'ul a perpetual impact. So it's one thing to teach, it's one thing to shine, But imagine making another person shine. Make your student also become a teacher. Bearing children that they too will illuminate, each in their own unique way. That has a whole different power. Because you, each individual, as strong as and powerful we may be, it's only as powerful as the individual. But when you have the ability to make another, to bring fruit in this world, and that fruit, of course, will bring other fruit, then you know it has an eternal effect. It's a simple message, but a profound message that every day, think to, think, to, think of, of your activities. Make sure every day you do something that bears fruit. Something, whether it's the fruit that comes out of a beautiful conversation, whether it's the fruit that comes out of an action, helping somebody, in a, someone that's in need, or helping them do a mitzvah, encouraging and inspiring. Anything that's outside of your own needs is ultimately a tildos, Is and not just one, but tell this plural, meaning more than one fruit, many fruit. And there's no greater blessing than when a person is able to actually actualize themselves by bearing those type of fruit. As I said, of all sorts of it, it can be in, through students, and students are also called, one who teaches someone is considered like they gave birth to them, also so tell this like offspring, but it also includes good deeds, includes all the ways we impact the world in a permanent way. So that's the message of have of this week. Rishchidosh Kislev, especially for Chassidim, in general it's a Kislev is a special day. Rishchidosh always is the beginning of a month. It's not just the beginning, it's the head of the month. In this case it's the month of Kislev with all, especially the holiday of Hanukkah, which is about illuminating. Again, illumination, illuminating the dark, bearing fruit by illuminating. And also in the Chassidosh Yom, you have in the Tes Kislev and Yud Kislev, which is the Mitla Rebbe's, respectively, his... His birthday and his yard site and his Haga his redemption. And we have Yudalat Kislev, the 14th of Kislev, which this week will be the 90th anniversary of the, the 90th anniversary of the Rebbe and the Rebatsons wedding in 1929 in 1928, I should say. So it's 90 years. And of course, Utes Kislev, the Rosh Hashanah of Hasids. These things will be, these days we'll be speaking about in upcoming episodes. So all this is incompetent in the head of the year. The head is the central nervous system. So Rosh Chodesh Kislev in general has that power. Then it has something that was added in the year Tavshin Lamed Ches. That would be 51 years ago. So, uh, uh, 41 years ago, I'm sorry, 41 years ago. That the Rebbe was the first day that after he had the heart attack on Shmini Atzeres night that year, Tavshin Lamed Ches, it was 1978. The Rebbe went home, on Chodesh Kislev, and it became like, because in halacha, The day you go home, the day where you really get out of the danger you're in, and you make make Goymel and you go home, was considered a ge'ula. And of course, it fitted the month of Chaga Ge'ula, the ge'ula both of Hanukkah and of Yitzchak Kislev. So Yishchidosh Kislev became symbolic of that. And every year, Chesidim Fabring, and the Fabringans continue to grow and expand, especially the Shluchim, as they grow, they celebrate Yishchidosh Kislev. And actually, the kinus of Shluchim was made this time of year, because it corresponds usually with Rishchidosh Kisov the same week, sometimes even close to the same day, because it's honoring the Rebbe, not just that the Rebbe came out of the heart attack, but he came out stronger than ever, and the whole concept of Shlichus took on a whole other dimension, qualitatively and quantitatively. So Rishchidosh Kislev is always associated with adding all kinds of new light, every form, including being emissaries, bearing fruit, tell this, and doing everything possible to finish the job of bringing in the gu'ula. Because all gu'ulas are connected. So even the gu'ula of an individual, especially of a rebbe, getting out of an illness and coming, not just getting back to health, to his regular health, but if anyone who's familiar with the rebbe's output. After that year, 1978, after that year, the rebbe began to double and triple his output, even literally in the amount of time that he bringing the hours of his talks, and of course in the actual activities. So, it's an inspiration to all of us that no matter what we go through, even if it's a time where we may have had a setback, at least on a surface level, ostensibly, we come out even stronger than ever. So, not just bearing, continuing to bear fruit, but bearing even more fruit than before the challenge that we had. So, all this comes together as lessons that we can all derive in the context of chsidis applied in our personal lives, in our collective lives, in our family lives, it's something we can share with our children. And there were a few messages that I just shared that I believe everybody can apply. Okay. I want to first give some cross-referencing to um, what I just spoke about since this is already episode 234. So we've already spoken about Rishchidesh Kislev and told in episodes 89, 139, 188, and 189. So here's a good opportunity. You go to MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife and you can access all the archives and all these cross-references, cross-reference programs that I just mentioned. And same thing, Kinnosh Hashlichim, I spoke about it in episodes 139, 140, and 189. And now we will do some follow-up on the topic of the unfortunate massacre and tragedy that happened last week before Shabbat, eight days ago. Shabbat before last, before yesterday. And uh, as I said then, I spoke about it last week, it's a difficult thing to speak about. Every time you think about it, people just torn out of their lives simply because they're Jewish, torn away from us. It's uh, horrible. And yet we need to become stronger. And there's been amazing sense of unity coming together. Unfortunately, there are some that try to politicize it, but we don't need to speak about that. There's much to be said, and I've seen even the Kinnos HaShluchim. There are many emissaries, Chabad emissaries that are in Pittsburgh, what they've done in the community and coming here this weekend, they actually led a prayer today and our an inspiration, of what you do in times of difficulty, and how we come stronger together, community-wise, and we add a mitzvah. There's many things online. Our people are adding light. Whenever there's darkness, you add another mitzvah and more light. So with all the tragedy, we do everything possible to redeem it, to transform the grief, as I discussed last week, into positivity. And we see this happening. It does not take away from the void and from the pain and the sadness, especially for the families, the community, and those touched by it, all of us touched by it, but it's what we can do. We don't just sit around. We don't just, I'm not passive and just cry. We turn the tears into some type of growth, and that's the that's the mission that each of us has to do in on our lives. So there's a little follow-up, and I just want to read a few things, and I'll try to respond to them. Um, one one. As is, what to tell people that would be go beyond that we are hated and nothing has changed. I'd like to be able to inspire them to do more mitzvahs and identify as Jews, as we are this one people with this one mission. Thank you. Yeah, Exactly correct, is what I just said. It's not enough just to say, oh yeah, anti-Semitism, and we've seen it already, and so on. That's not enough. We have to respond very straightforwardly. For three, three and a half thousand years, approximately, of our history, we've suffered greatly. And every instance, this is what we did. Kasher Yano as I mentioned, as the verse says, as they were oppressed, the Jewish people, Ken Yerba Yifritz. In direct proportion to that, they thrived and they flourished. Which means, darkness is never stronger than light. Light is stronger than darkness. So we may not understand why, we may cry over it, but we turn it into a positive force. So we're not here to lament anti-Semitism and just be anti-anti-Semites. What we want to do is add as much light and bring into this world a state of peace and harmony, a state of clarity, a state of education, that such things can never happen again. Obviously we're prudent and we do whatever is possible to prevent this in a security level uh, and we fight it with all our strength. We're not passively ignoring it. But ultimately our biggest fight is not with swords, but it's with light. Not with strength and with armies, but Beruach, with spirit. That's what with which we go. And that's why we're here today. Greater nations, greater. Infinite, much, much, much greater nations and empires who had even less challenges are no longer exist. But it's the spirit that keeps us going, and that's exactly the message that has to be shared. Okay. Another question. I was really Weighing whether I should pose these questions, especially since we're literally coming from the Shiva, standing up from the seven days after this massacre. But I'll try to address it in a a sensitive way, but the question did come in, so I will address it. Kill Jews, Kiddush Hashem. We know that Jews are killed because they are Jews are considered Kaddish and have fulfilled the mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem. Even if they may have chosen to foregone their Jewishness, if they were given a chance. So in other words, everybody you kill, especially in the name of being Jewish, there's no question it's a kiddush Hashem, because why was the person killed? Like he said, kill all the Jews. Why? Because you're Jewish, and that is a kid Hashem. This doesn't matter what type of person, what level they're on. Though this too needs explanation, the writer writes, for how can someone who transgressed the worst of various sins go from a mass sinner to a coder just because he was killed for being Jewish? So he's asking one question is, how do you explain it? And I'll do that, of course. I want to make it clear. I don't know what this writer's intention is. This is not in any way to cast any aspersions or any doubts that these people were sanctified because they were Jewish. It makes no difference who they are. We don't even ask that question. And then who are all we? We're all people who have sinned. And the Holocaust, six million Jews that died, there are many of them that were not observant. And even those that are observant have no transgressions. So this has absolutely nothing to do. If someone is killed because they're Jewish, it's Kiddush Hashem, and that's that. Because that's why they were killed. They were chosen because they were Jewish. And if any one of us was around in that situation, God forbid, we'd be in danger. So all this talk that some people may have not been completely observant, or, they are, or this or that, is completely irrelevant. The explanation you're asking, before I go to his other question, the explanation, why is it needed? How could someone who's transgress? Because what does one thing have to do with the next? We're all transgressors. Ain't ba'aretz There's no tzadik in this earth that does good, all good, and has not one sin. So if you start going with that attitude, you can say a transgressor, how could that person be mechal Hashem The fact of the matter is that we do not distinguish between the righteous, the less righteous, and so on. Obviously, we always try to influence people to be the best they can be. But when a gunman comes and massacres Jews because they're Jews, that's a Kiddush Hashem. And no one, no one ever says, let's check out his credentials and what background that person has. And I want to make it very unequivocally clear. I don't, why is it not an issue? A very simple why. Because a Jew is a Jew. There's a beautiful Sikha from the Rebbe, Tov Shinun Vayikra, where he speaks about Amzu Yatzata, Tielosi Yisaperu. Amzu, this nation. You have shaped, you have, Yishayi says, you have formed this nation. They will tell, they will relate, they will extol your your, um, your praise. So the Rebbe explains. That is two separate parts of the verse. It says, that alone is already a virtue. And Tiloshi Saperu is an, ex- an extension of that because they are your nation. That's why they will extol your praises. Meaning the following, and just to explain it a little more philosophically. It says that the whole world was created for Torah and for Israel, for the Neshom Yisrael. It says, everything was created, and two things, the, their thought, and intention preceded all of existence, Tayre and Yisrael. And that's the question. Which one came first, Torah Israel? But then, when I see that it says in the Torah, the Tanedvel Yose says, the Medrash says, command the Jews." Daber, speak to the Jews. That means the Torah was given for the Jews. So the Jews, the Neshamis, Machshavta the thought of Israel came before the thought of Torah. The Rebbe explains in Kisove Shenun Again, printed and edited in that year. Sefer Asichetov Shenun In other places, what does that tell you? That Torah is, is, the Israel precedes Torah. That's why Pekuach Nefesh, when a person is in danger, the Torah is not desecrated, it's the sanctification of the Torah to, to, not, to not keep Shabbos and save a life, to not keep Yom Kippur and save a life. Why? Because the Nefesh, the Israel, is greater than the Torah. And then the Torah, to save a life, that's its sanctity. Except the three Yarek Yav, which has other reasons which is not here the place to discuss. What's the reason for that is because, as the Rebbe explains there, a a very interesting chiddush, like a new idea, is because Israel will always lead to Tera. Yisrael will lead to Tera, and Tera not necessarily leads to Yisrael. So if you save a Jew, it will ultimately bring back the Tera. Because Tera will come with Telos yisaperu. But But Tera, if you preserve the Tera and the Jew dies, the Jew is no longer there. So we see from this, the etzim f- fact that I, the soul, and we say every morning, the soul you've given me is pure. Everyone says that. I once, told, I once asked a real kanoi, so-called a zealot, so-called zealot, that considered himself more religious than anyone. I asked him, I said, and he was dismissing Jews that are not as religious as he, which meant everybody in his eyes. So I said to him, let me ask you something. If a Jew who, God forbid, never kept Shabbos, never ate kosher, never put on film, I mean, if, they, if, if it's even possible that a Jew never did a mitzvah, it's almost impossible because mitzvahs include so many different things. If he did a favor for someone, he honored his parents or something, or visited the sick, is already a mitzvah. But let's assume very few mitzvahs, at least on an ostensible level. If that person decides they want to pray this morning, I asked them, should they say, Neshamah Sheh Nisatebi the prayer says, the soul you've given me is pure. Then it says you've created it, you've shaped it, and so on. He looked at me, he says, oh, you're a wise guy. Of course they have to say it. You want me? And he got the message. So I said, so How does that explain? So, you know, I, I wasn't even waiting for his answer. Why? Because the soul we know, the essential part of the soul always remains connected, can never disconnect from its source. So when a person is killed because they're Jewish like the, the 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 heart-wrenching words of Pearl before he died, I am a Jew, my father is a Jew, my mother is a Jew, I am a Jew. That Jewishness is there all the time. The fact that for some people it's been more expressed because they either were educated and know more or because they actualized it with, through their commitments, and some did not, for whatever reason. And in most cases, the reason actually is because Taneke Shin Nishbu, which means they're children in captivity, that they didn't know better. And I'm not talking about the people that they love. I don't know who they are, I didn't study their lives. It really doesn't matter. But the point is, everyone's nisham is Tahiri. Some people have actualized it. Think of it like the pilot flame is always intact. That's why we say that la yidik men that every Jew will do tshuva at some point. Because then the pilot flame never goes out. What can happen is it can be concealed, it could not be actualized, it can not be expressed. We fan the flames through Torah Mitzvahs, but that does not create the Jew. The Jew is by birth, by virtue of his being. He is Amzu he's God's nation, that God chose. And as such is that created the divine image. We're not getting now into discussion of non-Jews because I've talked about it many times. They've also created the divine image and also have that uniqueness. But we're talking now about the Jew. And when someone comes to kill a Jew for that reason, whether it's Hitler or this guy that shot the shooting in Pittsburgh, it's, it, that's the fact that that is the Jew in them, and that makes no difference between whether it's a tzaddik or a Russia, whether it's a righteous person or, or a, a wicked person. And that's why it's not a question. That still doesn't mean everybody, of course, has to live up to their potential and, and will be accountable for their behavior. But this matter, this is the point. He touched that part, the core essence. And in that sense, it makes no difference what that person did a minute before. That's why we don't make a distinction. All the six million Jews killed in the Holocaust, they're all Kodesh. The most greatest Kanoim, the greatest zealots, the rebbe, who was an extreme zealot, when people said to him about coming to him for a blessing, he said, you can go to any Jew that has a number on his arm and you can get a blessing from him. He didn't make conditions, even though he lived in a very, what we call ultra-charedi. Because a Kiddush Hashem, someone that went through that, has a whole different category. That still doesn't mean we don't expect from everyone to live up to the greatest challenges. To be, I'm sorry, to live up and be the greatest that they can be. So it's two separate things that need to be understood from Jew- Judaism and Torah. two separate things completely. Pikuach Nefesh, you don't say that someone's in danger, you start, start asking, how many mitzvahs did he do? There are laws about Pekor nefesh as far as priority goes because it's a parent or a teacher, but not because of this reason. So the point I'm making here is that one thing has nothing to do with the next and shouldn't even connect, connect it. But then he goes on, but how is this a Kiddush Hashem? Isn't it the opposite? Like we say, Loma Yemir Ayel So he's saying, why do we say when a person died because they're Jewish that it's a Kiddush Hashem? It seems like the opposite because it shows a desecration of God. That here is God's people and they can be massacred in cold blood. And that's why we say, why should the Goyim, we tell God, we besiege God, and we say this in the and we say this in Yisker. We say to God, why should the Goyim be able to say, the Gentiles, the anti-Semites, be able to say, where's your God, as the Nazis did? Where's your God? So it seemed that the killing of Jews in this brutal way, simply because they're Jews, where's the Kiddush Hashem in that? It's a desecration. So it's a good question on on the surface level. The answer is very straightforward. Yes, it's a desecration of God, not the killing of the Jew, the desecration that the person, the anti-Semite, had that power. But the Jew is sanctifying God because he was Jewish. What bothers the anti-Semite? The Jew. The Jew, what is the Jew? The Jew is the Jew of the Torah. What what, what defines a Jew anyway? Jew defines because God chose this people, and the anti-Semite can't stand it whether it's jealousy, whether it's delusional thoughts, or whatever it may be. So the fact that somebody comes, not because they are in business, they, they, they're jealous of you in business, or not because of they, like, they don't like your face, but simply because your Jewishness, your connection to God, it's like killing the witness, God's witness in this world, that's a sanctification. And from the point of view of the individual, it's definitely so. That means that you have sanctified Now, sanctification in the different sephoriam talk about what means sanctification, because there are people who actually were given the choice, should you convert or bow to an idol or you'll be killed? And they were killed, so that, you clearly say they sanctified God's name because they showed they want their God and would not compromise their God. So that's an active form of Kiddush Hashem. But there's a passive form where you did not, uh, were given a choice altogether. You were just killed because you're Jewish. There's a Kiddush Hashem in that. And that's why we call them Kedeshim and martyrs. And we say God should avenge their blood. Yet at the same time, of course it awakens the question within all of us, where is God? How could you allow such a thing to happen? So it's not a contradiction. It's both things at the same time. In a sense you could even say the desecration is because of the sanctification. Because it's the people that always brought sanctity in this world and they were killed because of that. That's their personality So it's a sanctification of them, but a desecration that they're allowed to be hurt in this fashion. So we don't take away from their qualities. We just, it makes the the sanctity greater, and it also makes the desecration greater. And he continues, and we know the effect the Holocaust had on a moon of many. Yes, we know. And it has weakened people. But at the end of the day, like uh, different Holocaust survivors say, after the Holocaust If anything, I lost my faith in human beings. I only have God to rely on, because look what human beings did to each other. Look what human beings did to us. So it's true, and we're not to judge anyone that has gone through such hell. The faith, where they stand with faith, it's between them and God, as I mentioned many times. And yes, of course it's in the science. A great test when you see something of that nature. But for some people, it became a stronger source of faith because we have nothing but faith to help us rebuild, and look, we have rebuilt. And whether it's in Viktor Frankl's more secular psychology of logotherapy, that it was because man's search of meaning, the people with meaning, the people with purpose in life and faith in life, it gave them the strength, or from a religious perspective, that faith gives you a strength that you cannot get through the rational. And that's what ultimately the sanctification is also done by the survivors. That not only did they fall down, did they not fall down and die, but they actually rebuilt and filled in some way the the tremendous gap and void left by building out their families and doing more mitzvahs and good deeds, which again is the way we transform the darkness into light. Okay. There was more discussion on this. I I will leave this... for next week, because there was a discussion, which again, to be very sensitive about the, about the fact that this was a conservative temple, a conservative synagogue. So let me just make something very clear, and I'll discuss this more at length. Someone said, well, what's the uh, attitude of Torah to conservative and reform? I don't want to even discuss that because it's irrelevant to this discussion here, because as I said, even if someone doesn't go to synagogue altogether, and if it's a synagogue, even a synagogue that you could say is questionable from a certain perspective from a Torah perspective, it doesn't in any way bear on the issue here at hand because the killer came to kill Jews. And the Kedeshim as I just said, regardless of their level of observance and their persuasion and so on. But we'll talk about that more next week in detail. Someone else wrote and um, following up on this discussion, Dear High Rabbi Jacobson, I want to continue the discussion you started last week about the tragedy in Pittsburgh. I would like to make a few points which I think will help prevent such occurrences from happening in the future. I'm not going to discuss the security measures that have to be taken, etc., but rather a solution from a spiritual and moral perspective. Point number one. I think it's high time that the Rebbe's directives of teaching the seven mitzvahs of Bnei Neach, seven Noahide laws, and implementing a moment of silence in the public schools be taken seriously, and since by divine providence, this Sunday is the Shluchim Conference, and hopefully you'll be reading this letter on the show, I think it's incumbent on the leaders in Chabad Lubavitch and the senior Shluchim to create a Sheva Mitzvah and Moment of sound Office to aggressively act to disseminate these ideals. Rabbi Simen, where are the Spitz Chabads? And may I add that this responsibility is on every member of Anash, as well, not just on the Shluchim. For, for after all, we are all Shluchim. So let me let me comment on this. Yes, it's extremely important that we all do everything possible to spread sedig veyesha, justice and virtue, to the seven no-eyed laws as the Rebbe called us to do, moment of silence. And he said the moment of silence is the best preventive medicine that when you teach children, that there's an eye in reye, there's an eye that sees, and an Shamas, and an ear that hears, then there's accountability. And that's the foundation of all morality, the foundation of this country. So there's no question when you see a a tragedy, a massacre like this, it's an excellent time to call this. How to do it, however, is we have to do it the way the Rebbe would want it. I don't know if the Rebbe, and I can tell you, I don't think the Rebbe wanted He actually negated that they should open up an office, but there are other ways to do it. So I just wanted to comment on that without taking away from the importance of doing it. Point number two, this person writes, in the event... In the event of tzara, of, of uh, tzara is a when there's a calamity or catastrophe, may no one know from it, you didn't always turn to God with prayer, whether it was through saying psalms or fasting. I remember the Rebbe on a number of occasions spoke about saying additional certain chapters of psalms. And at one point he said a fast Shah, meaning a partial fast a par- for part of the day, should take place. And in later years, the Rebbe said the fast should be redeemed with charity and the amount of three meals. So my point, Rebbe Simon, basically is, with all that's going on around the world in America and Israel, do, you don't think there should be some kind of international kinnus gathering of prayer, some type of kol which is a declaration statement from our rabbis. Where are our leaders? Where are the kol yungalite? Usually when our leaders do nothing, they jump in. Sorry for being so sharp, but it's a painful subject. Simon We conclude with good. Now, Okay, I read it exactly unfiltered, uncensored. Uh, the general gist is correct. We all have to rise to the occasion, especially the leaders, and do everything possible. As far as calling for fast days or saying to him, saying to him, obviously is obviously something you can always do. Fast days is something that only rabbis can really do, and they have to use the right discretion and know if it's appropriate and so on. So I leave that to the authorities in that sense. But your points are well taken, and thank you for that. Okay, with that, let us go to a few questions that are, usually everything is related to one way or another. And um, we'll begin with a question, a personal question, a very painful question, but I'll read it, about depression, anxiety, fear. What can I do about my fears and anxieties? Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I'm going I'm to bridge the letter because it's quite long. It was basically a person writing about their troubles. I'm currently t- tried almost everything in the book to solving my issues that I'm dealing with. Here's my final attempt to see if you are able to help me out. First, I want to say that I've studied Torah, did all the prayers, and tried my best to fulfill mitzvahs. But I stopped doing everything once I noticed that there is nothing I can do to fix my depression, anxiety, fear. All I can count on now is hope that maybe one day I'll be able to get rid of this. Not sure, but there's a little hope. First, I used to think that I was becoming crazy at first. But then I started to realize that people would like to speak in metaphors and parallels to try to attack me. When I noticed this, I found out that I'm not crazy. Just people are trying to be playing playing God and attacking me, making me feel like an animal. He goes on to speak about the different things that he feels, the toxic environment that he feels. He talks about his marriage. Difficult also with my marriage. My wife gets mad at me because I left... I, I can't. Because I came to a point where I don't work anymore. Because of this, I've tried so many times and failed, and people are just cruel. And I can't seem to find a job and focus properly. We've gone bankrupt because we can't provide. My, work, my wife has gone to work. I've become overweight... I feel like my wife may leave me one day. I just ran out of ideas. Nothing seems to work. I continue to become more and more insecure, and my confidence is shaken. I've tried going to doctors. I've tried all kinds of things, and I really have come to a point where I don't know what I should do. Thank you for your time, and perhaps you can advise something. Well, the truth is, this forum, my life, applied, though I tried to address everything, and hopefully it helps and benefits people, But there are topics that are very personal like this nature, though I read it because I wanted to show that anyone dealing with issues like this should not hesitate to write, and I will address it. But frankly, the way to address this is not for me to tell you exactly what to do, because I would need to speak to you directly and personally to understand your situation. Because here there are many, many issues. I would advise you, you have to find somebody, a mentor, a mashpia in your community, wherever you are, and speak to that person heart to heart. And it could be a doctor, it could be a therapist, but usually someone that knows you well, and to advise you, because this is not something that that has to remain the way it is. Everything can be handled. But we first need to diagnose the situation. We first need a prognosis, what's going on. And I cannot really say what's going on because I do not know enough from your information here. I just see it's overwhelming you, and I, my heart goes out to you and empathize, but I'm saying this to you and anyone else dealing with this type of de- depression or anxiety or fears, whether they're real or imagined. And what's causing it needs to be determined and what can be done to intervene to resolve it. But one thing, know for sure, there is always hope. But some, we can, a person cannot pull themselves out of their own pit. They can't un- untie their fetters because they're tied up. We're all subjective and we need that assistance. Now, you said you've spoken, you've tried everything, but I cannot suggest, I cannot accept that you tried everything because I always believe there is more hope. And if you're listening to me and you're writing to me because you feel I can say something, that's what I'm saying that you should do. And I'm not even going to address specifically the details for the reasons I just said. That needs to be addressed in a much more personal setting. If you want to reach to me, so send me um, send me your information confidentially, your email address or phone number, And give me details and I will respond to you, please God, the best way I can to help. Okay. I will refer you as well. I have spoken about this topic many times. In many. Episodes 4, 93, 182. And then many essays actually. The essay contest that we've held the last few years. have also spoken about this topic in episode 62, 68, 76, 82, 99, 126, 177. 216, 219. I myself was surprised when I saw how many sorts, how many different times it was spoken about, but clearly it's a prevalent issue. And remember, everything in life begins with a smaller problem, and if you don't deal with it, it becomes bigger. We need to nip You want to nip it in the bud if possible. If it's already grown into something, you want to get contain it and stop the bleeding and get back to the core and figure out what it is. But, but you definitely don't want it to continue bleeding and continue suffering and continue... This uh, this, the difficulties that you're facing so you have to stop it and one of the first ways is to get a true doctor or soul doctor that can help look into this and help you advise what to do next okay next question completely unrelated but a question that is a very relevant question and that is about what how much do we how much to reveal about a potential shidduch okay Dear Rabbi Jacobson, a few questions came in on this topic over over the last months. Recently I was asked about a certain person I know as a potential shidduch for someone. Shidduch is a match. I wanted to know what would be the boundaries of what to share and what to refrain from saying. For example, if I saw a person who went through a traumatic experience, I, I know a person who went through a traumatic experience as a child, they wouldn't want anyone else to know this. But for the other party, it seems crucial for them to know what do I go how you go about, about sharing that information or not sharing it. Thank you f- and sorry for being a nudge with regards to what to qualifying about your the, the Okay. Forget about the nudge part, it's not relevant. Question number two mental health in shidduchim. Our child will be entering shidduchim shortly in Mishra Hashem. She was diagnosed two years ago with depression and was given medication. Thank God she's doing much better now and still on medication. At what, number one, at what point in the shiddur do we have to make the other side aware of this? Two, to what detail do we have to go into it it when discussing this? Meaning how much of the depression and its manifestations do we have to reveal? A third question, in in a shiddur date, dear Rabbi Jacobson, in a shiddur date, you want the other to like you. A, how much should you cover from your weaknesses and failures from the other person? B, we all know how to fake and I get very excited. I get very misspelled. I get very affected from externals, the and it affects my behavior. How do I know if I'm being honest with myself and with the other person? If you could please elaborate the, this the question, and I would like to hear what you think. What do you think about this? Thank you very much. Okay, a very important question. I did address it to some extent in episodes 50, 51, 86, and in a special seminary edition that I did for the seminary girls in the uh, in, uh, in, uh, school. You can find that as well in the archives. Just look for the word seminary edition. But let me address it. The fact of the matter is like this. First, let's start with uh, Adinah Shalchan Aruch. Adinah Shalchan Aruch says, the Alta Rebbe writes, in Simen Kufnun Vau 156 Siv Beis. He writes that you're not allowed to lie. Obviously based on you're not allowed to lie. You have to tell the truth. However, he says, in order for peace, you're allowed to lie, but only on something, when you're telling something that happened in the past, not if it affects the future. So applying that, and then he's at Tzarekhin, whether, in the details of that, but it's not relevant to this discussion. When sharing, when things have happened to a person in their lives, some negative thing, it, all one big question has to be asked. Does it impact you now? And will it impact your future and your marriage and the people, the person you marry? If the answer is absolutely no, and you establish that with objective advice, a doctor or a therapist or someone that knows not just you made that decision, then who says we have to share everything that happened in your life? If it didn't impact, there's no reason to share. And you're not lying. You just don't have to share it because it's not going to impact your life in the future. However, if it's something that will impact your marriage... So obviously this person is marrying you, you know, you don't want them to, you're going to find that after the marriage and then the anger that can come from that and besides the fact that you misled them, et cetera, et cetera. So, so therefore, that's not something you can just dismiss and say, I'm not going to share it because it's not of their business. It is their business because it's part of your, their lives too. The question then is when to share. If you start saying things before you even go on a date, some things, when people say, I don't want to date this person. Now, there are things that even then you have to share because they are so significant. You know, if a person is truly fundamentally handicapped, God forbid, in a certain way. So, generally speaking, they need to find someone that's more like them. It's not something you can just ignore. But there are things that are, let's say, an illness, like bipolar, or things that say child abuse, molestation, that will affect, that can affect and will affect life. But it's not in that dramatic way where. It is a complete lie that means, you, I'm sorry, that you, can, you can't function. So there, this is what generally the consensus is, that at some point in the dating, before it gets serious, not before the dating, but some point in the dating, before there's an emotional connection which can hurt the other person, you need to share. And sometimes the advice is to actually expose and be transparent and say, come see my doctor. Speak to the doctor directly so you'll know. Because you don't want to have a situation where you did not share something like that, and then you get, get, get engaged, or the day before you get engaged, and the person especially and, and can become extremely angry and upset, you know, you lied to me. And if you answer, well, if I wouldn't have lied, or you didn't tell me, I wouldn't have told you, you would, you would have left me, you, you, the answer would be, I, I, that's my choice to make. And they're right. So does it have to be said beforehand? Not necessarily. But that needs to be also determined case by case with a proper mashbeam. However, there's a point where you have to say it, and not a point where already, the person is already committed to you and then you're just telling them that, because then you're, you're putting them in a very compromised situation, which is not fair. That's the general approach to it. Um, as I get case by case, because different situations require different circumstances. And again, I say this because, so let's say it's an issue of abuse. So abuse is affecting a person's life and may affect their Sexuality, they may affect their relationships, may affect their emotional, their emotional trust, and so on. It is a healthy thing to share at some point. Now, if the person decides they don't want to continue, that's their prerogative, as I said. Um, I know of many situations where people have shared, and they did get married, and with the right medication or the right therapy, it's a beautiful marriage. And the contrary, the couple is even closer because there was a, they do it, they're working on it together. And it was willingly done so, not forced. So it's completely doable. So do not be afraid. If the person is not meant for you, or they can't contain it, or they can't handle it, then maybe that's That's not the right person for you. So it's not about being afraid to lose the person by not sharing. On the contrary. You have to do it in a sensitive way. It's always good to get guidance and direction to know when to do it, the right timing, and so on. Okay. There is another a- angle to this, which I will leave for another uh, question for coming weeks. A from the Altar Rebbe, actually. Maimer um, uh, is on Altar Rebbe, is my modem. on uh, my mother, my mother So on page Sadik Aleph, he speaks about the fact that the are connected with not telling truths. But I'd rather focus on that in more of a academic discussion, because obviously... You know, there's always the element that you don't say everything, but you have to be careful not to ever withhold or lie, obviously, definitely not, something that's going to impact, as I said, a person's life. So we'll talk about that, Alter Rebbe, another time. But I just wanted to mention that for the record. If anybody has any follow-up to this, please don't hesitate to write. Again, MeaningfulLife.com forward slash my life. There's a forum. You can write confidentially, anonymously about anything you want to discuss, any comments anything you want to add or rebut or any anything you'd like to suggest or, th- or any thoughts and insights please share uh, okay the next question erasing things from one's memory can we erase negative memories can we erase negative memories Rabbi Jacobson, I wanted to ask you something that was bothering me for a while. A person that saw things that are not proper, movies, non sneers things, etc., is there a way to erase it from one's memory brain, or the most we can do is push it aside with with positive thoughts whenever those memories come up? But it's always going to be in the back of our brain. Thank you greatly. Appreciate it. A fan of yours. So I want to refer you to episode 115, which is related to this topic. It's a very good question. And let's make the let's argue the case both ways. When you look in Tanya Peri when he speaks about thoughts of sin that are inadvertent because you don't have control over them, three things that you have no control, but you have control whether you'll continue to dwell on it. So the thought comes in, and, and then then the meyach your self control triggers the self control, and it comes into play. And what it does is it pushes away that thought by putting and by thinking about something positive. So there, that's necessarily not necessarily connected to memory. I'm just pointing the thought, the idea, like you said, to push aside. And the goal here is just to push it aside and not, not dwell on it and think about positive things. But the, the question comes, as you're adding, what happens? It's not just a thought that came your way. It's a thought based on previous experiences. Like you said, memories. Is it possible to completely erase those memories or not? Or you can only do is push away, like the Altid Rebbe says. So I would suggest that perhaps this is connected to the two levels of tshuva. Tshuva meyira, it says, when you do tshuva out of fear. So it's mekanalahaba, it affects you going forward. Tshuva ma'ava is also lemafreya, also retroactive. It can transform the past. And Chassidus explains how can you transform the past, because God is higher than time, and he can connect you to your soul in a way like, cleanse you in such a way that you can trans- that you can actually like it never happened, to the point you can even do Kazakh, is that you actually transform the negative into positive. So with that, perhaps you can apply this to here as well. That in, in true, it's hard to erase a memory. A memory is a memory, but perhaps if a person does such a level of tshuva, such a level of inner inner soul searching, and literally washing themselves out to the point that they become so connected, like he says in Tanya, chapter seven. That the that the void that they had caused such a thirst that now the tshuva ma'ava that could actually transform negative memories into something positive, where maybe you learn how to channel anything that's negative into a positive act, because it's like a tshuva that you did for it, and that would suggest that perhaps a memory could be erased in that way. That's my thought on the topic. I've, I've not seen this explicitly but I'm just throwing that out. If somebody has something they've seen or heard from the Rebbe from Chassidus or have their own thoughts on the matter, I'd love to hear it. Um, one more thing I would add is that the fact of the matter is that when even if you push it away and you keep it away from your mind and you keep focusing, at some point it becomes distant memories. And this is this is proven fact. That doesn't mean it completely goes away, but it means it doesn't affect you anymore. Because the key thing with any of negative thoughts is it causes you to become obsessed with it. It consumes you. And that for sure, by staying away from it and by moving on and doing good things, it becomes a distant, distant memory where you almost don't even, it doesn't affect you at all. It's not like it brings back everything back the way it was. So that's the second point I wanted to make in this discussion. Next question. Bas Mitzvah. What is the Rebbe's approach to celebrating a bas mitzvah? Dear Rebbe Jacobson, what's the right thing to do for girls turning bas mitzvah? I know many Chabad houses have big events for women in honor of the bas mitzvah. Is that in line with the Rebbe's teachings? On one hand, that can be a big kiddush Hashem. But on the other hand, from what I understand, the Rebbe said to keep it small, like not much more than a simple birthday party. Please help me figure this out so that I can do the right thing for my daughter. I can either do something for the community we work with or just something for her classmates. Thank you so much. Okay, appreciate that question. It's a good question, and that I have never addressed, I believe. So that goes into the new category. Okay, so let's just go over quickly a few key points that I want to make, and that is, first of all, the source for Abbas Mitzvah is in Torah. It's not a some modern invention. It is a Torah. We find it in the, in Chazal. It talks about a woman at age twelve, a girl, becomes mechuyev Mitzvahs. If you want to know exactly where it is? It is in Mesechta um, Nidah. It's a Mishnah, fifth chapter, Mishnah Volf. Okay, that that at twelve years old. Why twelve? So the Rosh explains. The Rosh, the Pesach explains because Nitna More Bina understanding was given to a woman. That means she matures quicker. A year, and that's why she's considered a year earlier, more mature, being able to take upon herself the responsibility of mitzvahs, whereas a man, a male, a boy, has to wait till age 13. Okay. The Rambam paskins this in Hilchas, let me give you the source, Shvisus Osir, chapter 2, halacha 11. So he paskins exactly this thing that a woman is then responsible for a mitzvahs. Now, so therefore, based on that, Based on that, just like there's a simcha in a bar mitzvah, it seems that there should be a simcha in a b'as mitzvah. The Zoya says the rebbe brings a Zoya Khadash that and actually makes this equation and says l'chayr this also applies to a b'as mitzvah that there was a big simcha Rajbi did for Rabbi Lozer by his bar mitzvah. So the rebbe brings in the sicha in uh, in Tavshim Ches, the sicha that he speaks about birthdays Tavshim Ches, Volume One Sefer Asiches page three hundred thirty two footnote 21, that the same applies to bas Mitzvah, to do a simcha. And the Rebbe even adds, not just a simcha for, the, for her and for the family, but also for others. This is the Rebbe spoken in a yechidus to the people who became Bar Mitzvah in the, in the 15th of Thomas Tov Shimam He. Now here's an interesting thing to point out. The sikhahs of the Rebbe were Bar Mitzvah and Bas Mitzvah. So clearly there's an union in it and there's a joy and a celebration. So what's the problem then? Problem is that in later generations, some of the movements that were not halachic movements embraced the concept of a bas mitzvah. So there's some rabbis that came out against it because to distinguish from them. So that can be. And some people actually said not to do it in a public way, definitely not, or, or not to do it at all because of their um, because of because of what happened there. The question is, what is the Rebbe's approach to this? So we see clearly that the Rebbe does not negate doing a bas mitzvah, definitely not. The question is, because in some communities it may stand out and may seem that you're embracing that custom, but, but maybe that would be a question of how to do it, how public to do it. And maybe because it's near, or because of that, to do it more like part of a birthday party or part of a party that you're doing with, a commu- with, a, with her classmates, the girls' classmates, and so on. But on the other hand, we also know that just because just because some people are doing it whatever their reasons are, there may not be great intentions. That's why we, the concept of the bas doesn't exist, God forbid, of course it exists. And the simcha, the joy exists. So based on the Rebbe's discussions, the Rebbe's letters, you basically have do it in a, perhaps not as a most blatant way, especially in a situation where it can be misinterpreted. And that again is case by case. But to do a simcha, to do a party, or to do some celebration is absolutely acceptable. Sometimes to do it together, the Rebbe writes to do it with the Malava Malka, with the Mesib shabbos, or something like that. And again, it's not because it are taking away anything from the girl's simcha, and from the Bas Mitzvah, but because of the interpretations of some Rabbanim who were careful in that regard because they saw it as some type of like expression that was being used by some who broke halacha, and this is the only they embraced this. So it could be the sensitivity to that. We have to be sensitive, but that not in any way taking away and saying no. A girl has less of a celebration than a boy. Absolutely not. So it's much more for a technical reason than for any other factor involved. Okay. Yeah. Good. Um. And the Rebbe spoke, as I said, in the Yechidus, in the Bar Mitzvah and Bas Mitzvah. What do you need more than that? Clearly, in, clearly equating the two. And of course, as I mentioned, the Allah and the sources do not get weakened just because of everything I've said. Okay. Now, because of time limits, we're going to go straight to the Chassidist question. And anything I did not address, I will address, please God, in the coming episode. So the Chassidist question is back to Shlichus, since we're talking about the Kinnus does the concept of shlichus have a source in Hasidus? So firstly, in Nigla, shlichus is, of course, you find shlich for Kedushin, a shlich, ain't shlich a you can't send a messenger for doing a sin, but you find shlichum that a person sends someone to be a shlich, to either give a woman a betrother a, 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 a or other forms of shlichus that you do a shlich, you send somebody. Question is, in and remember, the Rebbe and the Rabeim, the concept of Shlichus, um, takes on a whole new dimension, as I spoke, from the Sikh of Tav Zayn. So let's go back really to that Sikha, and you'll see, he actually, the Rebbe addresses it directly. And he says, "Yes, yeah, Shlichus, he says, is in all levels. Bechol HaDagash HaLamayla, footnote 2, on page 86, in the Sikh of Chayasura HaTav Shemem Zayin. So he says, he brings from the Teira right in the beginning of Ayikra, 1-3, he says, So anything outside of Atzmus, anything outside of the core essence of the Divine is already a because something is being extended, something is being transmitted through another level. That's called a shliach. So he says, so, bottom line, even the highest levels of it is already a shliach of God's to accomplish something. So, anything that transmits through something that God uses to transmit it—that's the shliach, the thing He's using, the amtsoi, the medium, the the media, the, the the interface. And the Rebbe explains here that how the concept exists, of course, regarding the neshama. Because every neshama goes from one level to the next. Who's sending it? Who's the Mishalech? God. And the Shliach is the soul. Or as I just said, the higher levels, the Eir, or even higher than that, whatever level you're talking about, is the Shliach of Hashem to accomplish a particular mission. So the concept is fundamental in the whole this the whole Sayyidishta Oshles. Then the Rebbe continues on how that goes on, that, that mitzvahs are, are called Shluchim. And the misham is called shlichas, and he continues on, shluchat rachmona, Kehanim are called shluchim, he goes through all the levels of shluchas all the way to the Fritik Rebbe and the Rebbe sending out shluchim in the most literal sense of the word. So the concept exists in Chesidus. I want to add one more point. It's a fascinating thing. In Chesidus it talks about levels of bitl. Sometimes talk about three levels of bitl, sometimes four, sometimes even five. In bitlah er. Eir is the ultimate example of bitl, because Eir doesn't have any existence of its own. All it is, is an emanation transmitted from its source. So it's like a shliach of the Meshaleach. So the sunlight is being transmitted from the sun. So the question is, how deep is the bitl the, the nullification and the, and the suspension of self, of Eir to the source? So sometimes it says it recognizes the source. Sometimes it says ma'en. It's like the source. Sometimes it's driven to the source. It's drawn to the source. Then there's the air er within the etzen. So that air er is doesn't even have substance, but it's already the potential for light. So the Rebbe, speaking about shlichus, interestingly also talks about three levels, four levels, and even a fifth level of bitl. That you can have the shliach being bottled mshalach is only on a very technical level. That the arm of the shliach right now. I, I'm the Mishalech, I give you something, I said I want you to give it to that person down the block, or another city. So it doesn't, you, you have not become a full power of attorney of who I am. My, your arm, when you give it, is like an extension of the arm of the Mishalech, of the emissary. I'm sorry, of the, of the one that sent you, the sender. Then there's a deeper level, that your being becomes part of. That's also the koyach not just the yad, but the koyach, the power. And then there's the level that your whole being becomes part of. Shluchim may say mishalech, much like the mishalech. And this goes on and on to the point the Bitel gets so bitl that you no longer there's no shleich; it's the mishalech as he's working through the shleich. So I'm not going to go through all the levels right now, but the levels of as the Rebbe explains how the bitl of a shleich, the mishalech, you can equate it to the Dagis dargis of bittel of Eir to the moir. Of light to the source, which is not—it's interesting because in shlichas it actually is tangible in human beings here, the level of their commitment. Like in the Sikh of the last Sikh of the What does the Nebbe say then? That he could be a shliach, he could be a shatchin. A shatchin is doing a message. He's also a broker, but he's a broker. He gets something for it. A shliach is only doing mishaleich's work, the sender's work. Two levels, to different levels of bit. So with talking about shlekhs and khsiddes shlekhs can help illuminate and actually explain and understand these deep abstract concepts in er and its bittel to its source like the shlekh's bittel to his source or her source which is the sender the mishaleh okay with that let us go to the three essays we'll go quickly to the three essays is essay number 1 the land of israel by bezal malamed 871 and of all places pittsburgh pennsylvania so Purash Gocha Pratis, it was not scheduled because of what happened, but interesting, But Alam, 871. So he writes, there are two burning issues facing the Jewish people today, those who seek to destroy us, how to hasten the coming of Mashiach. I'll tell you, this essay was not written after last week. This essay was written months ago. So it's a little eerie, um, uncanny that he would write about this. They're obviously intimately connected, and herein is a solution to both using Chassidus as the key, how to deal with people who seek to destroy us, and how to hasten the coming of Mashiach. And he goes on to speak about Chassidus and amuna, and the power that it infuses us with, and uses the Kuntus and Yonash to explain how Chassidus introduced a whole new dimension. And the Sikha of Metzoy Shabbos is Tav Shalom Ches, that the solution to the peace in Israel is to announce to the world that Israel is ours because it was given to us by decree of Hashem. And it brings a whole bunch of quotes from Tav Shekhov Daled, and other places. Very interesting, especially in, regard, in, in consideration, this is coming from a 70-year-old man Jew in Pittsburgh. So I definitely recommend the reading of it. Very nicely done and uh, very relevant. Well, the, okay. The second essay is I Am Haman, Svi Schwartz, age 32, Granada Hills, California. In this essay, we will discuss the struggle of low self-worth and the way to redeem oneself from its pitfalls using the method described in the Megillah according to Chassidus. And he speaks in the language of my name is Haman HaGogi. He speaks about Haman and and the war that Haman led against the Jews, against God. It's a short and sweet essay, but nicely done. And how it all backfired on Haman and how it applies to us in regarding self-worth and finding the right Balance between humility and individuality. Finally, the third essay: the ultimate king, Rochel Cohen, age twenty-one, Brooklyn, New York, a student to Machon Chana. If there is one thing that the British are proud of, is their monarchy. Let me tell you: the thousands of tourists traveling through London Heathrow, Ypres, daily, definitely aren't coming to them for the weather. And goes on to speak about what the monarchy is about, but but what, what but is that what what the British monarchy have become? What exactly is it? Some type of just external. Superficial thing, and she goes on to explain what true royalty is in context. True royalty, using the the, the British monarchy as an as a springboard, um, and how the Alter Rebbe responded when he met the Tsar. That you must be the Tsar. He recognized the Malchus on Earth that is similar to the Malchus in Heaven, even though he was a Tsar, he was a Saint Yisrael, and so on. But there's something called Malchusdik, and she explains what Malchus is based on derich Mitzusecha Mine Melech. And um, and how we can also apply that to our lives, that we have the melech within each one of us, Moych, Lev Kovid, Melech is Roshitevis Melech, the king, who should run? Who's, who's the sovereign force that controls your life? Very well done as well. OK. With that, we conclude this week's episode. A few things that I said I would speak about, I'll speak about in the coming weeks, or coming week. With this, let me conclude. Everyone should have a frelach and kislev, a month of kislev. Eden should only know simchis here in Israel and everywhere. And finally, shliach with a ten should finally bring mashiach mamish, literally down here below in this world and the world transformed, a world of peace and harmony. Mala world will filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. We're here every Sunday, eight to nine p.m. I encourage you to listen, to feed, give feedback, ask your questions. I also encourage you to help us and support this effort. Through your donations, through your contributions and the dedication, dedicating a, a program or a series of programs in the memory of a loved one or in honor of a loved one is a great way to do so. You just go to meaningfullife.com/sponsorship. Thank you very much. As I said, this has been episode three, two hundred and thirty-four of My Life Citizen Applied. We are here every Sunday, eight to nine p.m. Everyone have a blessed week and a and a blessed chiddush month.